Welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host, and you'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm every Monday at 10 a.m. That's 10 a.m. Eastern Time, or since I'm (laughs) New York-centric, New York Time. Uh, But you'll have to figure out what time it is in your part of the world since we're global. Also, there are other ways to get to us. You can find us on iTunes, TuneIn app, uh, Stitcher app. So, And you can even listen to us on the phone. Uh, So uh, one of these days I'll tell you how to do that. Oh, hey, dial 424-203-8046. And you can listen on the phone. Although, if you have a phone to listen on, you could probably um, uh, also get uh, uh, the web on that phone. And what I do is uh, listening to PRN. Since it's not on the radio dial, I just plug my phone into my car, which I'm used to doing because I've got dozens of books on my phone, the audio books that I listen to. So, anyway... Um, you can also catch our back shows at visionaries.podbean, that's P-O-D-B-E-A-N is Nancy, dot com. And today I'm going to do a monologue about design education. Uh, next week, uh, hopefully we're going to have on Christopher Vogler. And if you're into screenwriting, you know who he is. Uh, there are three... M- must-read books for every screenwriter. One of them is <clears throat> The Writer's Journey by Christopher Vogler, which grew out of a famous seven-page memo that he wrote at Disney about uh, a universal structure for movies. So we'll talk more about that next week. And uh, what else did I want to talk about? Uh, well, we'll see as we go here. But there's a uh, there's a phrase that you hear when uh, wonks, <laughs> policy wonks, are talking, and they use phrases like uh, inside baseball or deep in the weeds. In other words, <clears throat> going into detail about uh, political policy in more detail than maybe the average listener might be interested in or more detail than we usually get, you know, in uh, in a tabloid paper, but what's really going on behind the scenes and how they're really doing it and et cetera, et cetera. And if you're interested in public policy, of course, you're interested in all that. You know, who, 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 who is uh, determining what policies and what administration, all that kind of stuff. So thought, talk a little bit about education in those terms, because these things really affect all of us. Excuse me. <clears throat> and um, I teach at an art, architecture, and design school. So 
you know, what are we dealing with? What, uh, what's going on in my field? And it has to do with a major transformation the entire culture underwent 100 years ago. And we're talking about it, and it's come up, and, you know, it's something we discuss, because it's happening again. There's another transformation. So uh, you might have heard of the Bauhaus. And the Bauhaus was a design school in Germany in the 1920s, closed down uh, in response to the Nazis. And many of the key figures uh, came to the United States. So, for example, the founder and first head of the Bauhaus was Walter Gropius. And he went, uh, when the Bauhaus closed, first to England and then to the United States, and eventually became chair of the Department of Architecture at Harvard. And much of the approach to architecture in our world today, <laughs> I'm going to say something nasty, uh, came from that education. And then Mies van der Rohe, who was the last head of the Bauhaus, went to Chicago to be head of Illinois Institute of Architecture. Another figure at the Bauhaus, Marcel Breuer, uh, uh, came to the United States, taught at Harvard, and opened an office in New York. And uh, there was... Um, in the late 1960s, we began to question modern architecture, like, are these glass boxes sprouting up all over really the best we can do? Is this what we really want? And a whole series of books came out, uh, The Failure of Modern Architecture, Form Follows Fiasco, uh, stuff like that. One of the books actually was by one of my teachers, Complexity and Contradiction in Architecture. And uh, that was by Robert Venturi. And what he said, in effect, was uh, modern architecture prides itself on being simple and direct. However, life is not simple and direct. It's complex and contradictory. And if our architecture is going to reflect our world and our lives, maybe it also should be complex and contradictory. Anyway, that was uh, Venturi's book. So lots of these books came out. Well, one of the figures in uh, this world was Sibyl Maholi Nagy, or Nagy. And she was the widow of Laszlo Maholi Nagy. So... Laszlo Moholy-Nagy was one of the key figures at the Bauhaus, responsible for much of the design curriculum. And he also came to Chicago and founded something, I think it was called the Little Bauhaus, trying to continue its education. I'm going to go in a moment into what was the point of the Bauhaus education, but a little bit of gossip uh, before we do that. And he died young, leaving his wife, Sybil, as a uh, uh, widow with no skills. And she actually taught the history of architecture at my school. And I now, <laughs> in effect, have her job. But 
uh, she had uh, given that up and was a prominent figure in New York circles. And I was talking to her once, and she said, no, I, I had no involvement with the Bauhaus. I didn't, I didn't, you know, was not into architectural history. I trained myself in all of that. I was a nudie star on the Berlin stage. <laughs> it was her background. At least that's what she told me. So, um, anyway... Uh, these figures came here, but she wrote an article for one of the art magazines. I'm not going to name it because I'm not sure which one, but its title was Hitler's Revenge. And she uh, joined the chorus uh, pouring criticism on modern architecture. <laughs> she says in the article, uh, we defeated Hitler in World War II, but he got his revenge by sending all those modern architects to the United States to uh, destroy our country. <laughs> so uh, uh, she had a knack for uh, uh, a kind of bluntness that really woke people up. So we were all discussing that article in uh, that month. Anyway... Getting back to what was the Bauhaus about, and it was a little, it, it was mostly what we would today call industrial design, designing chairs and teapots and you know, furniture, fabrics, etc. A tiny bit of architecture, not very much, and a lot of art, and so figures like Paul Clay were there, uh, prominent on the faculty, very important modern artist. And the um, idea behind the Bauhaus was as follows. The two things were happening in the early 20th century. One was uh, possible, it didn't happen, but it was a fear of decline in the arts, in painting, because... Uh, you imagine a uh, Renaissance prince would commission an artist to make a portrait of his mistress. And there were no more Renaissance princes. Well, now there are again, uh, as we have our, our billionaires today. But uh, And then ordinary people couldn't afford this art, and elites who would be commissioning it were fading. So what would be the role of the painter? At the same time, if we go back before industrialization, and to oversimplify, if you wanted a teapot, an artisan would have you know a sheet of copper and hammer it into a curved shape and solder a bottom onto it and make you a teapot. So our stuff was handcrafted. Well, with the uh, actually starting earlier, but with the late 19th and then early 20th century, things like that started to be mass-produced in factories. And <clears throat> and they were, at least uh, people with an aesthetic sense, thought they were pretty poorly designed. So Walter Gropius's idea was, suppose instead of an artist making... Uh, a painting for a rich person to buy, hopefully, the artist became an industrial designer 
and the industrial designer would design a teapot uh, or whatever so that it could be mass-produced but with a uh, really good aesthetic. As a result, and then let's say instead of getting a lot of money for one handcrafted teapot, the industrial designer got a royalty, a few pennies, on every one that was sold. And then the customer would get a well-designed teapot that we might even consider a work of art. So that was the philosophy behind the Bauhaus. And part of the motivation was that Germany was in a race with England, which was way ahead, in the Industrial Revolution. And Gropius's notion was good design would give Germany a leg up in this competition with England for industrial supremacy, if we want to use that word. So that was the idea behind the Bauhaus. Now, if you're going to design a teapot or chair or other furniture, table, tea set, lamp, lighting fixtures, they were going to be mass produced, you had, you needed two things. And that became the curriculum of the Bauhaus, these two things. First was an, an aesthetic sense. Now, previously, aesthetics came from the past. So if we jump over to architecture, what is the front of the Metropolitan Museum or the 42nd Street Library look like? Well, it gets it from the past. It gets it from the Beaux-Arts, the European tradition, the Baroque, that gets it from the Renaissance, that gets it from Rome, that gets it from the Greeks. So we have these Doric, Ionic, and Corinthian columns on our buildings up until modern architecture. That was the aesthetic of the building, and it came from the past. And to be an architect, you studied the past. You studied Greek columns, not just the way my students do. Oh, you know, those are the characteristics of a Greek column. But to be able to design them, because you're going to be putting them on the buildings you're designing, because that's what architecture was before modern architecture. So for New York, think of the 42nd Street Library or Grand Central Station or the Metropolitan Museum, or the Brooklyn Museum, etc. So, that was ending. So, what would be the aesthetic? Well, Gropius proposed that it would come from basic principles. So, what are the basic principles of all form? Well, all form is made up out of, they said, a point. Put a pencil down on a piece of paper and you get a point. Move the point, you get a line. So point, line, move the line, you get a plane. Lift the plane out of the paper and you get a three-dimensional object. So point, line, plane, 3D form. And then that form has color and texture. So point, line, plane, form, color, texture. Those are the basics of everything. Everything we would make, design, use, have, I'm looking around the studio, <laughs> microphones, uh, digital clocks, headphones. You can imagine designing them from point, line, plane, form, color, texture. Now, one more step, and that is we're not going to make this teapot or headphones or chair in uh, customly, custom-made by a craftsperson, 
but rather we're going to make a prototype that can be mass-produced. So you student then has to study and understand mass production. What goes on in a factory? What are the materials? Steel, copper, other metals, sheet metal, um, metal processes, forming, bending, milling, and wood, glass, paper, cloth, and then stamping, forming, milling, etc. So the student would understand industrial materials and the industrial manufacturing process. And now you're prepared to design a teapot, lamp, chair that can be mass-produced. And this new mass-produced thing will be uh, economical and well-designed and functional and bring a clean, modern, streamlined aesthetic into everybody's lives, everybody's homes. I'm amused by the economical part. Uh, First of all, if you're listening to this online, uh, open up your browser and put in Bauhaus Design or Bauhaus Lamps or Bauhaus Teapot, and you will see really incredibly beautiful stuff. Now, keep in mind that stuff and the Bauhaus teapot, when you open up the page, you'll see one of them just sold for $380,000. So they made them at the Bauhaus, but they weren't intended for you to buy them. They were intended to be prototypes that would then get mass-produced. When all this came to the United States... The um, place that promulgated these ideas was New York's Museum of Modern Art, or today we say MoMA, with capital M, small O, capital M, capital A. On 53rd Street, although it had earlier locations, and in the early days of the Museum of Modern Art, the founder of the architecture and design department was the modern architect Philip Johnson who at that time was an architectural historian and uh, let's just say rich person. He was a inherited the Johnson, he was part of the Johnson Wax family. So S.C. Johnson, a family corporation or something like that, a uh, company in their current commercials. So Philip Johnson was independently wealthy And he was able to support this department out of his own pocket. And it exhibited modern architecture. 1932, Philip Johnson, along with the historian Henry Russell Hitchcock, produced a show called The International Style on modern architecture from all over the world, which meant mostly United States and Europe, although there's quite a bit in Mexico and South America, too. little bit in Japan. And then Philip Johnson went to architecture school. As an older person, he went to Harvard and upon graduating 1949, did the glass house. You might have heard of the glass house. And 
It's in New Canaan, Connecticut, and it you can visit it. So if you're going to be in Connecticut, uh, make sure, call in advance because you need reservations. Anyway, uh, Philip Johnson organized this design department at the Museum of Modern Art. And what he would do, he would do an exhibit on furniture and, you know, lamps. So he'll have, he would have an old-fashioned lamp with tassels and all kinds of stuff, and then a clean modern lamp with a Bauhaus-inspired design. And he then would arrange for Bloomingdale's to carry for sale the stuff, the modern stuff. So you go to the Museum of Modern Art and see what you're supposed to have if you want to be an au courant modern person, uh, you know, these Bauhaus-inspired lamps and chairs, etc. And then you could go over to Bloomingdale's and buy it. So you could have it in your apartment. Well, that was the idea behind Bauhaus design. And to this day, the things we admire in design are still have that inspiration. For example, uh, stuff from Apple, the iMac, the iPhone, are inspired by this design aesthetic where the design comes from its function, how it fits in your hand, the feel of the textures, how it functions, the materials that it's made out of. And John Ive, the chief designer at Apple, works within that aesthetic inspiration. Now, uh, my school and most other design schools are still inspired by those ideas. Training students to design, well, I go to the end of the year exhibit at my school for the design students, and there's sneakers, motorcycles, chairs, tables, what else? Wine bottle labels, advertising layouts. Oh, by the way, the, the Bauhaus originated modern graphic design while they were at it. <laughs> the Bauhaus is an interesting phenomenon. They were a small technical high school that came to dominate the world through really great PR. <laughs> they knew what they were doing. Anyway, to this day, students are designing things inspired by this point of view. Now, something has happened. All of this was training students to design things that would be produced in industrial production. Guess what? That's ending. We're entering the digital industrial age. So, I don't know how Jeff Immelt, former CEO until a couple weeks ago of General Electric, managed to get himself fired, but he was into some pretty inspired stuff, and uh, he's been, he, before leaving, has rebranded General Electric as a digital industrial company. You might have seen some commercials uh, promoting it that way. 
So I was just, you know, fooling around on the Internet, searching on this and that. Uh, isn't that fantastic? You just one thing can lead to another. And instead of going out, which I used to do, going out and buying another book, <laughs> you just uh, put some, open up another browser, another page in your browser, and try something else. So I was thinking about new leadership in my school, and I had read Jack Welsh, the great CEO of General Electric's biography, Jack, straight from the gut. <laughs> Real tough guy. And Jack Welsh was generally regarded as the greatest CEO of modern times until who's the competition? Who came along? Right, Steve Jobs. So it's between the two of them. Anyway, I you know, so his autobiography or memoir is quite a while back. And I was thinking, should I listen to it again? I, I, who can read anymore, right? I, I listen to audiobooks. But anyway, should I read this again? Uh, you know what? I wonder what the new CEO, until a couple of weeks ago, Jeff Immelt, is up to. Well, the way you find out is you go to YouTube and you listen to talks by the person. Cool. So I go to YouTube and I listen to Jeff Immelt. And I'm seeing there are a lot of talks by him, and they're all from something called Minds and Machines. Well, it turns out that starting about, oh, four or five years ago, every year General Electric's been having a big conference, about 3,000 people go, and they're all, um, they're, the presentations are from heads of different divisions at General Electric, which is as big as a small country in terms of everything it does. Uh, and they, I think they no longer make small appliances or even washing machines, but wind turbines, gas turbines, electrical generators, locomotives, all kinds of stuff. So they would have heads of all divisions of their diff the parts of the company that do this different stuff, make presentations. I'm listening to them, and they're really mind-blowing. This is great stuff. And they're taking place in France. Okay, cool. I can, you know, I'd listen to all the talks from 2013, 2014. Oh, my God, the conference for 2016 is taking place in San Francisco. So I went. So... What do they mean by digital industrial revolution? Well, the most obvious poster child for this is 3D printing. So instead of making prototypes and then using that from which to mass produce it, you make your thing in the computer. You know, and I think most people today understand 3D printing, but it's a really strong analogy to 2D printing. So 2D printing is you make anything on your computer screen. Uh, typically, we might type something in Microsoft Word, and you might drag an image into, into Word. Uh, you might get an image from the Internet, drag it into your what you've written. You might open a web page. And whatever's on your screen, you then click Print. 
and whatever's on your screen shows up in your printer. So your computer translates whatever was on the screen to a stream of pixels. For each pixel, gives it a color value and rows and rows of them, you know, 300 pixels per inch or whatever it is, and gives uh, whatever it is, 24-bit color values to each pixel. And what comes out of your inkjet printer, I use a laser printer so I don't get the color, but I do so much printing for because I do a lot of writing that the laser printer is cheaper and faster. But your inkjet printer puts down layers of, what is it, red, black, yellow, blue, (laughs) I think, ink, and uh, yellow and blue can mix to make the green, something like that. Uh, uh, Pixels, um, uh, colors add in printing and subtract in... uh, on the screen or something like that. I'm not into that stuff. But anyway, whatever was on your screen is now on the piece of paper. And I got the first Macintosh when it came out in 1984. I got mine in the first 100 days. Unfortunately, I didn't keep the box and everything, and then I upgraded it. But if it were original with the box, it might be very valuable. But anyway... I have to look up on eBay, see what those things go for. You know, there's all kinds of cool stuff that I've lived through, like a Cray 1 supercomputer. Wow. Uh, You can buy them on eBay. I don't see one recently, but every once in a while, one comes up for sale. You know, just that you can use this decoration in your office or apartment for maybe a thousand bucks or something like that. And then there's stuff like, and any, you know, our. Our uh, smartphones are more powerful than a Cray-1 supercomputer, so, um, you know, (laughs) know, they're passe. And then the things like core memory. So the memory in your computer or your smartphone is all done on a chip, like the little flash drive you use. But before they worked that out, before they could make non-volatile memory in a chip, They literally did the following. Imagine a screen from a screen window where you have vertical and horizontal wires. And now you're looking at that screen with a magnifying glass. And you have these little, the grid where these wires are crossing. At each cross, imagine there's a loop of iron, a tiny little donut of iron around that crossing, and it's at every crossing in the screen, and the screen is, I just bought one. This is called core memory, and the screen might be, oh, three inches by three inches, and it's really tiny. You can't see that it's what I'm describing unless you use a magnifying glass. (coughs) You don't need a microscope because these things have to be made, and they're made by hand. People weaving these things together. This is what memory was. So those two, if two wires, you know, the wires are one to a thousand and A to triple Z on the vertical and horizontal. So if the wire B 
C, the B wire and the C wire, where they cross, if they both get an electrical charge, it will magnetize that little core one way. Uh, if they get another charge, it will demagnetize that core. So whether the, that little donut, it's about the size of a head of a pin, is... I used to have a whole bottle of them. Some techie gave it to me years ago, and this is how they actually did it. I'll tell you how old I am. So that, whether that was positive, you know, magnetized or not, that's a bit. That's a one or a zero. And that's how memory worked until now our memory is billions of times more capacity than those things. Well, I thought that was cool. So I go, go, I go on eBay and I bought one. You know, it was like 10 bucks for a little two-inch square core memory of that screen with those little things on it. And you can look at it with a magnifying glass. Anyway, where did I digress from? So, so we're in this digital industrial age. And General Electric is using 3D printing. Oh, yeah. So the, our 3D printer. So only a few years ago, when I got my first Mac, that printer was 72 DPI, 72 dots per inch, and little needles, bang, 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 hit a ribbon and made a spot on the paper. And that's how you would print out a page. And you could do different fonts, but they all look kind of crude because they were, you know, today our printers are probably 600 DPI unless you get a fancy one. They might be twice that. But 600 DPI is good enough for uh, good printing. Maybe they're more for color photos. But anyway, now imagine the exact same thing, but you've got a 3D thing on your computer screen. It's a 2D image of it, but you've made a cube, and it's on your screen. So now your 3D printer... Um, well, your computer slices that cube into, let's say, a, a thousand layers per inch. And your 3D printer, instead of putting down a layer of ink, puts down a layer of melted plastic that's a thousandth of an inch. And it does that a thousand times, and you now have your one-inch cube. You go out to dinner and come back. Uh, used to do that with 3D with uh, 2D printing when we were printing out uh, big 11 by 17 pages for stuff preparing to go when I was making brochures and stuff like that we'd click print and we'd go out and get a hamburger <laughs> oh, I guess we're not supposed to eat hamburgers on uh, PRN uh, we'd go out and get a vegetarian meal anyway the more and more stuff is being 3D printed. They're now 3D printing rocket engines. So besides melting plastic and depositing it on the base of the printer, they can have little spheres of aluminum or steel or titanium, and they position that magnetically and then hit it with a laser and melt it and build up a solid object. And there's a company using a ribbon of aluminum, and it deposits through the print head 
feeds that ribbon, hits it with lasers to melt it to build up a rocket engine. And we're on the verge of things happening where, let's say, you know, SpaceX has been doing this for a while and been making progress. But say you go back 20 years, a rocket engine might have 10,000 parts, and now they have 1,000 parts, and once they can 3D print them, they'll have maybe 10 parts. And so they'll get 100 times cheaper and more durable. They have to be more durable because the big thing they're going to do about space launches is reuse the rocket. And you've seen those great videos where both SpaceX and <clears throat> what's Jeff Bezos' rocket company? Anyway, both of them have been able to land the booster so that they can reuse it. And whereas, you know, in a Saturn rocket, uh, the booster goes in the ocean and then second stage goes in the ocean and you throw the whole thing away. And as Elon Musk puts it, going to space is expensive because imagine you were going to fly on a 747 to California and you get in the 747, flies to Los Angeles, you get out and they put it in a in a in a metal crusher compactor <laughs> and build a new one so you can fly home. <laughs> that would make flying coast to coast pretty expensive. But if you just refuel the jet plane, right? You uh, it lands, they refuel, and they used to have a cleaning crew, but I think now the the stewards do it. Uh, go down the aisle and do a quick sweep up, you know, collect all of your trash uh, just before landing to minimize how much has to get swept up. And they let in the next bunch. You know, we're all standing in line in group one, group two. I'm always in group seven or nine. <laughs> anyway, uh, as soon as the other people come out, quick sweep up and we reboard and it takes off again. They don't build a new one. <laughs> They just uh, refuel and probably bring on more food, <laughs> bring in new little cans of Cokes or whatever they're giving us. Or maybe we're not supposed to drink Coke on PRN, a little cans of uh, apple juice. So General Electric is entering that world, but it's not just 3D printing. It's stuff like everything they make, every locomotive, diesel locomotive, every electric generating turbine or diesel. Well, they, it's not really diesels because they, they, instead of using diesel fuel, they use gas. But every windmill they make has a twin in the cloud. There's a digital twin that totally mimics the real one and they're all in, they're in, the digital twin is in touch with the real one and in touch with the other digital twins. So just to make up a little scenario to understand what this means, and they're saying this is like cutting in half the amount of maintenance they have to do. Rather than saying, well, <clears throat> we got to do maintenance every six months on this windmill. You know, we have to, or I have a, a distant relative who does electrical 
generating turbine maintenance. So he goes off and he has to take one of these giant turbines, maybe, oh, I don't know, 10 feet in diameter, and they blow gas through there, spinning it to generate electricity. And every six months, you have to totally take it apart and put it back together. And a couple dozen parts get replaced. And that way they last a long time. Probably not indefinitely, but pretty long. So what if instead of doing that, you could be tracking every part in there and know if it needs maintenance. And if it doesn't, you don't do the maintenance. And so they've said, this has, this has what do they say? This has reduced our unscheduled downtime 20%. So now suddenly a windmill or a gas turbine is running 20% more time. That means it costs 20% less in relationship to the amount of work it does. So just to make up a little scenario, these digital twins are in touch with each other. And, you know, all of a sudden, the, uh, let's say, the bearings in a wind turbine are overheating. And so the digital twin knows, and it checks with its sibling digital twins. Hey, are your bearings overheating? Yeah. Well, when does that seem to happen? You know, it seems to happen when the wind goes over 55 miles an hour. Well, what if we disengage the clutch when the wind hits, say, 50, and see if it stops the overheating? Uh, Do you think we should uh, call the human maintenance people? No, let's give it a try, see if disengaging the clutch works. And, you know, if it works, we don't have to call them. Cool. So that's what they're doing. (laughs) So if you're into any of this techie stuff and the world is totally changing, what techie stuff means, um, you know, if... uh, I don't know if anybody in I didn't take auto shop, but the auto shop garage in my high school was right where we lined up to go into school in the morning. So the auto shop guys were always hanging out. And uh, we really, you know, that was such a cool world because they took cars apart. <laughs> they take the engine out of the car, you know, and do stuff to it. So so if you, you know, you remember that world, maybe if you had a a VW uh, bug, the original one, you could actually just lift the end, the motor out of that thing. You didn't even need a a pulley to get it out. If you had a, you know, a Ford and you're going to drop a Mercury engine in there, you needed a pulley system to pull the thing. You couldn't lift it. But with a VW, you could. So if you're from that world where you're into that kind of stuff, well, go to YouTube and put in Minds and Machines, and you'll find all these talks. It's just mind-blowing. Other cool stuff. The, uh, just to see how our world is changing. There are people of every gender and ethnicity 
giving the talks. When I went to the live one in San Francisco, the opening speech was by a woman who was the assistant CEO, and it was a woman, and she was wearing a leather motorcycle jacket. <laughs> I didn't know executives were allowed to do that. <laughs> I mean, I have one, but the, I got it in a pawn shop in Harlem in 1962 when it, you know, is one of the originals, but which is where you had to get them in those days. But here's this whole new world emerging. And my point is, we're going to run out of time here because of my endless digressions, but the Bauhaus educated people for an industrial world where raw materials came into one end of the factory, went through a series of industrial processes, and a finished product came out the other. And the industrial designer understood not only the functioning of the washing machine, toaster, iPhone, whatever, that was going through that process, but also understood the processes, the materials and the processes, and would design a prototype now probably in the computer as opposed to modeling, although you can still model it because you can 3D print it in the design studio to be go th- to, to to design the thing that would go through that process. That process has changed. That process is now being revolutionized by this digital universe that we have entered. My argument is that we need a new education. We need not to, you know, not to be reproducing the Bauhaus, as beautiful as that stuff was, but to create an education for this world. Now, what would that include? Well, a lot of the processes that were done in the... Oh, there's another one more digression I have to use. Any design studio, industrial design studio, architecture office, has 3D printers. And, I mean, you buy... Uh, toy ones for $500. But, you know, most of these have a model shop where they can make stuff in plastic and whatever. So if it was 40 years ago, and would they have cell phones 40 years ago? If it was 30 years ago, and you were an industrial designer designing a cell phone, you make some drawings and magic markers on paper. And then before you go to the meeting with the client, you'd carve it in soap, (laughs) in a bar of ivory soap. And then you'd put black shoe polish on it. And you say, here, this is what it's going to look like. You can see how it fits in your hand. Well, that's the best they could do. Uh, We don't use magic marker anymore. We use a 3D printer that can print out, you know, at the quality of a page of Vogue magazine in full color in absolute stunning detail. And we don't use a bar of soap anymore. We 3D print it that looks almost exactly like the real thing's going to look. Anyway, that's a digression about how this world is changing. But in your computer, you're making the cell phone, say, 
you're modeling it with some type of 3D software, some type of like AutoCAD is a famous one. And architects and designers use it, or you'd use Revit or Rhino or whatever. And But then there are all these add-ons. You use Grasshopper to organize the process because these software packages aren't just lines in 2D. They aren't just forms in 3D, but they are tied to databases. They are information. So if you know anything about architecture and you know you know, you see in a in a movie, a TV show, they're out on the construction site and there's a big roll of blueprints and there might be 50 blueprints in there. And that's maybe 10% of them, um, you know, and they roll out the blueprints and they all have their hard hats and they're rolling out the blueprints and they're all doing this construction jock uh, macho stuff. And but then when you get down to, well, how's that ceiling fan going to be? And where, how many screws are attaching the louver for the ceiling fan to the ceiling? That has to be shown, has to be designed. Well, that was called shop drawings. Those are all the little detail stuff like, well, what, what door handle do we use? Where's the door? How high is the door handle from the floor? Every bit of that has to be designed, you know. You know, you don't let the contractor say, well, I'm going to just, you know, go get some door handle. You design, the architect has to design that. So there's thousands of drawings. Today, there is literally, we're almost there. They like to say it, but it's not quite. But it's, you know, there is one drawing. Every detail and zooming in and different is all in one. It's not a drawing. It's a document because the people in the field don't don't have rolls of drawings. They have iPads and they can zoom in on, well, where am I supposed to put the doorbell? Zoom in on that. Oh, there it is. It's the X17 doorknob and it goes 23 and 6 eighths inches up from the floor or from the bottom of the door. So all that is all in one drawing. Well, the fact that we're doing those drawings that way is changing how we think. And instead of thinking in a, <clears throat> a linear industrial sequence of steps, the way, tell you how old I am, <laughs> I learned. Uh, the big invention in architecture in maybe the 1890s was blueprints. And by the time I got to school, we had blueprints. So that was it. There was nothing new until the computer. And then it started really developing because the computer at first made drawings, just like we used to make with uh, pencils on Mylar. But now you're uh, using very sophisticated software packages to make the designs that are tied into information databases. And they might be even tied into the databases at the manufacturer, not just all within your document. Well, how does that change the way we think? The fact that, uh, you know, if we're writing, we have an introduction, uh, a development, and a conclusion. There's seven parts to the Aristotelian essay, but let's just say three, introduction, body, and conclusion. Well, if you can put hundreds of ideas in little, they're like uh, cartoon bubbles that you get in Grasshopper, and you, put, I, you can put anything in there. You can put 
a drawing. You can put a design. You can put words. You can put an idea. You can put uh, a data file. And you can move those little bubbles around. And you can have them relate to each other or relate to others or means that the complexity with which you can manipulate ideas is gone beyond a beginning, a middle, and an end. There are literally hundreds and thousands of permutations that the computer can keep track of that we can't, that makes whole new kinds of thinking possible. And then that new kinds of thinking, this was actually got into architecture from the aerospace industry or the not just aerospace, but for the design of nuclear submarines, the design of fighter jets. These things are so complicated. There's so many wires. There's so many ducts and parts and that the only way to uh, keep track of it was with a new kind of software called parametric software. And Boeing would use this and the the high-end versions of this would cost like $25,000 per workstation. So if Boeing had 100 engineers working on a project, they'd have to pay $2.5 million for the license for every one of them to have a copy on their computer. You, they kept track of it. You couldn't uh, pirate it. So when architects went to use it, we, we're not in that kind of economic world. So they had to make cheaper versions for us. But anyway, it's whole new kinds of ways of thinking. And then you're not dealing with things. You're dealing with relationships. So if you say, well, I have two columns and they're 20 feet apart and I have beams and wires and ducts going between these two columns. You know, I think I'd like to make them 22 feet apart. Well, now you got to change all the beams and columns and wires and ducts. No, you don't. The software does that if you put it in correctly in the beginning. And then it all rejiggers on all these levels. It's whole new ways of thinking. And so my argument, I had all these thoughts about education, but there's one, that this is a whole new way of thinking. And if we start our students in, to use that term, freshman English, not writing an essay with a beginning and a middle and an end, but using Grasshopper, using these highly sophisticated organizational software packages to put together complex ideas, to be moving, you know, putting your finger on the screen and moving the ideas around into different relationships and then having the computer jump them into not just three dimensions, but computer scientists work in hundreds of dimensions and then have to bring it back down to three to make it in the physical world. But to be able to think that way, to work in higher dimensions, move it back down, we should be doing freshman English that way, and that will train us to be able to think. So my vision, if you walk into the, um, a school of the future, imagine you're taking your kid to uh, grade school for the first time or junior high or high school. What should it look like? Well, I think the entrance should be a 
big glass bucky fuller dome and you walk into it it's full of plants that are being done in botany experiments and there are little robots going around tending doing the gardening there are quadrocopters flying around everywhere there are kids with laptops sitting there reprogramming the robots that are doing the gardening and the quadrocopters that are doing the surveying there are sensors buried in the soil and everywhere which are keeping track of all this. There are monitors everywhere showing what's going on in the classrooms, showing the lectures they had last week in the auditorium uh, that anybody can call up any class, any you know lecture from yesterday, the day before, the year before, and watch it and review it, can do Khan Academy exercises, can be learning how to program their robots, and in programming their robots, learning higher-order thinking, higher-order programming. This should be from kindergarten. This should be what we're doing, preparing people to be in this world. There's going to be two kinds of people, you know, those who can think linearly and are going to write about how the world's falling apart and we're no longer in control, and not understanding how Uber, how does Uber do that? You know, how does it decide which taxi you're going to get? What kind of, how does the program, who made that program, which tracks, uh, you can, you sit there looking at your, there's my Uber, it just turned the corner, it's now coming up the block, I can watch it, wave, that's me. Uh, and you go up to the door and you say, John, he says, yeah, <laughs> that's my Uber. How do they do that? And if we don't understand how that programming works, you know, it's like we're driving an automobile. We still understand, you know, how, you know, that you, it used to be you press the gas pedal and it opens up the carburetor and it sucks more air with, uh, you know, the carburetor putting in a, a gasoline and spray into the air. And opens up a valve, blows it into the cylinder, closes a valve, it explodes, moves the cylinder down. You know, unless it's interesting what they've done. A gas pedal still feels the way it did 50 years ago, but it's not opening up a carburetor. It's telling the computer what to do. But they put a spring in there so it'll feel like it used to feel, you know. Anyway, so let's wrap up. This is a, maybe I'll do some more shows on this because I didn't even scratch the surface on how our world is changing and what that should mean for changes in our education. Um, it turns out we used to, we like to say architecture is the mother of the arts. Well, architectural education is the mother of education. I'll talk more about why. But what we're doing in architecture really is showing the way for what all of the education uh, needs to be doing. So this is John Lobel. I'm uh, wrapping up. This is Visionaries. You hear us every Monday on PRN.FM. And tune in next week. We're going to have Christopher Vogler. Talk to you then.